0: required reading, and other dangerous subjects. Several years ago, I learned that I had passed a new literary milestone. I had made it to the halls of education under the rubric of multicultural literature, also known in many schools as required reading. Thanks to this development, I now meet students at book signings who proudly tell me they're doing their essays, term papers, or master's theses on me. By that, they mean that they are analyzing not just my books, but me, my grade school achievements, youthful indiscretions, marital status, as well as the movies I watched as a child, the slings and arrows I suffered as a minority, and so forth, all of which, with the hindsight of classroom literary investigation, proved to contain many Chinese omens that made it inevitable that I would have become a writer. I find these academic revelations quite strange, as if I were in a story reading my obituary. Come to think of it, when I was a student, the only writers I analyzed had long since passed on to that great library in the sky. They were dead and gone, and therefore could not protest what I had said about them or their works. So if I wrote what Henry James really meant, well, there was no Henry James to say, you bloody fool, if that's what I meant, that's what I would have said. I, however, had the distinct pleasure of hearing, while still alive, what I really meant when I wrote The Joy Luck Club. For example, one student discovered that my book is structured according to the four movements of a sonata. The proof lay in the fact that my parents had wanted me to become a concert pianist, as mentioned in my author's bio on the book jacket. I learned through another student, who called in-depth biographical information from an authoritative source, People magazine, that my negative portrayals of husbands and fathers are based on my numerous bad experiences with men. I showed that essay to my husband, Lou, who has been my devoted companion for over 25 years. As the recipient of such scholarly attention, I know I'm supposed to feel honored. Yet in truth, I am more often embarrassed. It's as though I had eavesdropped on a party conversation and discovered that I was the subject of juicy gossip by a group of psychoanalysts, or perhaps proctologists, depending on how in-depth and obsessive the analysis has become. On one occasion, I read a master's thesis on feminist writings, which included examples from the Joy Luck Club. The student noted I had often used the number 4, something on the order of 32 or 36 times, in any case a number divisible by 4. Accordingly, she pointed out that there were four mothers, four daughters, four sections of the book, four stories per section. Furthermore, there were four sides to a mahjong table, four directions of the wind, four players. More importantly, she postulated, my use of the number four was a symbol for the four stages of psychological development, which corresponded in uncanny ways to the four stages of some type of Buddhist philosophy I had never heard of before. Extending this analysis even further, the student recalled that the story contained a character called Fourth Wife, symbolizing death, and a four-year-old girl with a feisty spirit, symbolizing regeneration. There was a four-year-old boy who drowns, and perhaps because his parents were Baptists, he symbolized rebirth through death. There was also a little girl who receives a scar on her neck at the age of four, who then loses her mother and her sense of self. She symbolized crisis. In short, her literary sleuthing went on to reveal a mystical and rather Byzantine puzzle, which, once explained, proved to be completely brilliant and precisely logical. She wrote me a letter and asked if her analysis had been correct. How I longed to say absolutely. The truth is, I do indeed include images in my work, but I don't think of them as symbols, not in the Jungian sense. To me, symbols are stand-ins for abstract ideas. They belong to the high school of hidden meanings. Vases symbolize female orifices. Broken vases symbolize a loss of virginity and innocence. Heavy stuff. I prefer using images. My writing tends toward the elementary school of word pictures. The accidental shattering of a vase in an empty room changes the emotions of a scene from serenity to unease, perhaps even dread. The point is, if there are symbols in my work, they exist largely by accident or in someone else's interpretive design. That is, they are more Freudian than Jungian. And I mean Freudian only in the sense that what I intended and what I wrote are not what someone else says I meant. I don't intend to hide symbols at regular plot points. If I wrote of an orange moon rising on a dark night, I would more likely ask myself later if the image was cliched, not whether it was the symbol for the feminine force rising in anger, as one master's thesis postulated. To plant symbols like that, you need a plan, good organizational skills, and a prescient understanding of the story you are about to write. Sadly, I lack those traits. However, I do have a couple of Chinese and Western books on dream interpretation. Having two versions comes in handy. Say you dream that your teeth have fallen out. If one book gives you a bad interpretation, the other is often more optimistic. All this is by way of saying that I don't claim my use of the number four to be a brilliant symbolic device. In fact, now that it's been pointed out to me in rather astonishing ways, I consider my overuse of the number four to be a flaw. I'm not suggesting to you that I write my stories without any consideration of the words and images I include. I choose my words carefully, in fact, with much love and anguish. They are, each and every one, significant to me, by virtue of their meaning, their tone, their place in the sentence, their sound and rhythm in dialogue or narrative, their specific associations with something deeply personal and oftentimes secretly ironic in my life. I know that in one instance I used the word for because its open vowel sounded softer, and thus better to me than three or five. On the other hand, the fact that I wrote that the mahjong table has four sides was a no-brainer. I have never seen a mahjong table with more or fewer than four sides. As to the ages of the children in the book, I can say only that I was fond of the world at that age. Magic happened. Anything was possible. I didn't yet know what was not. And so at that age, when an auntie told me that my mother had eyes on the back of her head, I actually saw them peering out from underneath her permed hairdo. By the same childhood logic, insects talked to me. Naked people danced underground. A marble of wax fell from my brain into the tunnel of my ear and onto the lap of my skirt. My imagination and reality were nearly the same thing. I believed what I heard. I then saw what I believed, which is not unlike what I, as a writer, would want readers to do when they read my stories. I have to make them believe the stories are true. And in fact, some parts of them are. The character called Fourth Wife, for example. She is not called Fourth Wife for symbolic reasons. I wanted to pay homage to my real grandmother, who was indeed a Fourth Wife, who did kill herself as the result of her position in life, and who was the woman upon whom two of the stories were based. Reviewers and students have enlightened me as to not only how I write, but why I write. Accordingly, I am driven to capture the immigrant experience, to demystify Chinese culture, to point out the differences between Chinese and American culture, even to pave the way for other Asian American writers. I am not that noble. The truth is I write for myself. I write because I enjoy stories and make-believe, the power of words and the lovely peculiarities of language. I write because there's a lot I don't understand about life and death, myself and the world, and the great in-between. I write because I'm not the sort who can answer questions that ask true or false, yes or no, A, B, C, D, all of the above, or none of the above. To me, the answers are irrelevant because the questions are wrong. I write to find the questions that I should ask, and for me, the stories are the possible answers one story for each particular set of characters and circumstances. I write for the same reasons I can't resist rubbing a numb spot on my kneecap where I tore my nerves. I like to poke at the numb spot of my memories, the secrets, lies, betrayals, contradictions, and losses. Underneath these old scars lies a painful kind of truth fought for and prized because it belongs only to me. Rummaging through my memories, however, isn't like hitting rewind and replaying a video. I can change the past, make it better or worse. I can become the person who once wronged me. I can make that person sorry. In effect, I write stories about life as I have misunderstood it. To be sure, it's a Chinese-American life, but that's the only one I've had so far. Contrary to what is assumed by some students, reporters, and community organizations wishing to bestow me with honors, I am not an expert on China, Chinese culture, Mahjong, the psychology of mothers and daughters, generation gaps, immigration, illegal aliens, assimilation, acculturation, racial tension, Tiananmen Square, the most favored nation trade agreements, human rights, Pacific Rim economics, the purported one million missing baby girls of China, the future of Hong Kong after 1997, nor, I am sorry to say, Chinese cooking. Certainly I have personal opinions on many of these topics, especially on food, but by no means do my sentiments or my world of make-believe make me an expert. And so I am alarmed when reviewers and educators assume that my very personal, specific, and fictional stories are meant to be representative down to the nth detail of not just Chinese-Americans, but sometimes of all Asian culture. Is Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres supposed to be taken as representative of all of American culture? If so, in what ways? Are all American fathers tyrannical? Do all American sisters betray each other? Are all conscientious subjectors flaky in love relationships? Why do readers and reviewers assume that a book with Chinese-American characters can encompass all the demographics and personal histories of Chinese America. My editor at Putnam's tells me that over the years, she has received hundreds of permissions requests from publishers of college textbooks and multicultural anthologies, all of them wishing to reprint my work for educational purposes. One publisher wished to include an excerpt from The Joy Luck Club, a scene in which a woman invites her non-Chinese boyfriend to her parents' house for dinner. The boyfriend brings a bottle of wine as a gift and commits a number of social gaffes at the dinner table. Students were supposed to read this excerpt then answer the following question. If you were invited to a Chinese family's house for dinner, should you bring a bottle of wine? I hear that my books and essays are now on the required reading list for courses such as ethnic studies, Asian American studies, Asian American literature, Asian American history, women's literature, feminist studies, feminist writers of color, and so forth. In many respects, I am proud to be on these lists. What writer wouldn't want her work to be read? I take a certain perverse glee in imagining countless students sleepless at three in the morning, trying to read The Joy Luck Club for the next day's midterm. Yet I'm also not altogether comfortable about my book's inclusion on required reading lists for reasons... Well, let me relate what I learned at a conference where I had been a guest speaker... At the end of my talk an official from the california state department of education came up to me and said by the way your books were recently approved for a state's multicultural recommended reading list for high schools i smiled gratefully but perhaps did not look sufficiently impressed for she then went on to assure me our criteria are very stringent for a book to make it onto the list it has to pass through a gauntlet of educators must agree that the book under consideration will provide a positive and meaningful portrayal of the culture it represents. Positive and meaningful portrayal. I was stunned by those words. I didn't know what to say to her, so I simply nodded, realizing that my books were contributing to dangerous changes in how people view literature. In fact, as I later discovered in talking to university friends... Arguments fly back and forth in the halls of ethnic studies programs over which books are more valuable than others, all based on this so-called stringent criteria concerning positive and meaningful portrayals of the cultures they are supposed to represent. Factions within minority groups have sprung up. The different sides throw sticks and stones at one another as they argue over what literature is supposed to represent, mean, and do. And a growing number of readers... Educated readers, now choose fiction like cans of soup on a grocery shelf. If the book is labeled ethnic, it must contain specific nutritive ingredients, a descriptive narrative that provides lessons on culture, characters who serve up good role models, plots and conflicts that contain socially relevant themes and ideas, language that is wholesome in its political and ethnic correctness. Recently, I talked to just such a reader, an agent, not my agent, but a young agent perhaps five years out of college. She said to me, I love your books, they're so educational. What will your next book teach us? What's the lesson? I told her, I don't write books to teach people anything. If readers learn something, that's their doing, not mine. The agent said, really? But don't you think you have a responsibility as a minority writer to teach the world about Chinese culture? Her comment reminded me that if you are a minority, your work may not be read in the same way that, say, Ann Tyler, John Updike, or Sue Grafton are read. Your novel may not be read as a good yarn, an enjoyable way to pass the time on the beach, or a long airplane ride. No such frivol for your fiction, especially if it receives attention outside of your so-called ethnic community. And so if you are a minority fiction writer... You should not be so presumptuous to think your work can reside in the larger world of imagination. It must be prepared to march into a territory of multicultural subject matters. You, the minority writer, must keep in mind that your work may be called upon to serve a higher purpose, that it might be inducted into a cultural lesson plan. I know this is happening because I have received the student papers, the ones marked with an A for excellent analysis of the differences between Chinese and American cultures. And it disturbs me, this trend in thinking, that there are those who think that literature has a predefined purpose. It terrifies me that well-meaning people are determining what literature must mean and say and do. And it infuriates me when people use the so-called authority of their race, gender, and class to stipulate who should write what and why. What exactly are their qualifications? The prohibitions come in many forms. You can't write about lesbians unless you're a lesbian. You can't write about Native Americans unless you are at least 25% Native American and a registered member of your tribe. You can't write about African American or Asian American males unless the portrayals are positive. You can't write about Hindus unless you are a member of the lower caste. You can't write about Latinos unless you still live in the barrio. The mandates are just as strong. If you're gay, you must write about AIDS and explicit sex. If you're Asian American, you must write about modern, progressive characters, no hearkening back to the bad old days. If you are African American, you must write about oppression and racism. And who are you to question these mandates if you're not a member of the particular minority group at issue? I am beginning to hear this type of ethnic authority invoked more often these days. It's as though a new and more insidious form of censorship has crept into the fold, winning followers by wearing the cloak of good intentions and ethnic correctness. The leaders of the cause point to the negative and tiresome stereotypes mindlessly reproduced in textbooks over the years. Why are Chinese people in American history books portrayed only as faceless workers on the railroad? Why should we read Hemingway when the facts now show he was a misogynist and an anti-Semite? The question is not whether stereotypes, misogyny, and anti-Semitism are to be condoned. It has to do with whether human ills can be loaded up on a cart called literature and hauled away like trash. And yet there are actually people who believe the fictional world has the responsibility of righting the wrongs of the living world. They believe they can help eliminate racial stereotypes by censoring it in fiction. If you disagree with such thinking, it's hard to parry with your own arguments. For one thing, any time you talk about ethnicity, you are in danger of tripping over terminology and landing in the battlefield called racism. And in the unstable arena of ethnicity and race, there is no common language everyone agrees on. It's hard enough for me to determine what ethnic descriptors I use for myself. Do I refer to myself as a Chinese-American writer, an ethnic writer, a minority writer, a third world writer, a writer of color? From person to person, and particularly writer to writer, these terms carry different emotional and political weight. Actually, if I had to give myself any sort of label, I would have to say I am an American writer, I am a Chinese by racial heritage. I am Chinese-American by family and social upbringing. But I believe that what I write is American fiction by virtue of the fact that I was born in this country, that my linguistic intuitions are American English, that my literary sensibilities, assumptions, and obsessions are largely American. My characters may be largely Chinese-American, but I think Chinese-Americans are part of America. As an aside... I must tell you that writer of color is an expression I personally dislike, since in terms of color, Chinese people have always been referred to as yellow, the color associated with cowardice, jaundice, bananas, ping the duck, and the middle-class Marvin Gardens and Monopoly. I'd much prefer terms such as colorful writers, which seems to refer more to the writing itself. Or how about writers of different flavors, Cuisine is probably a much closer indicator of differences in literary taste than skin color. Writers of color is also an exclusionary term. You're not a member if your skin is too pale, and yet perhaps the same issues face you as a writer if you're Armenian-American or gay or lesbian or a woman. Whatever we are called, as the result of common experiences, both bad and humorous, we often have an affinity with one another. We are segregated in the same ways, placed on the same bookshelves and reading lists. In fact, I wonder if literary segregation is one of the reasons why the cultural factions have arisen. We're pitted against one another. Consider book reviews. More often than not, if a book is by an Asian American writer, an Asian American is assigned by the newspaper or magazine editor to review it. On the surface, this seems to make sense an Asian-American reviewer may be more sensitive to the themes and meanings of the book, never mind that the reviewer is an academic in history, not a fiction writer, and possibly not even a fiction reader. But a reviewer who is thus qualified may dwell more on the historical relevance and accuracy of the book than on its literary merits. For instance, the language, the characters, the imagery, and storytelling qualities that seduced the reader into believing the tale is true. The review may be favorable, but it casts the book outside the realm of literature. And woe are you if the Asian American reviewer champions both ethnic correctness and marginalism, who believes your fiction should not depict violence, sexual abuse, mixed marriages, superstitions, Chinese as Christians, nor mothers who speak in broken English. If two or more books by Asian-American writers are published in the same year, more likely than not, the book review editor will assign those books to be reviewed simultaneously by one reviewer. More likely than not, the reviewer will compare the books, even though they may have nothing in common, except for the fact that they are written by Asian-Americans. Gus Lee's China Boy is compared to Gish Jen's Typical American. David Wong Louie's Pangs of Love is compared to Fei Myan Bone, and so forth, and often through the tired and presbyopic bifocal lens of two themes, immigration and assimilation. I remember what one reviewer with the New York Times had to say about my second book, The Kitchen God's Wife. Quote, If one were to compare this book to Shogun, The Good Earth, works by Betty Bell Lord, Jade Snow Wong, Maxine Hong Kingston, and he continued further with his list of Asian names before concluding, Quote, it's been done before and better, end quote. I found myself asking out loud, what's been done before? China? Suffering? Mothers? Death? Hope? Love? Pain? I wasn't disagreeing with the reviewer's conclusion. Those other books he cited might have been better. But what exactly was the basis of the comparison? And why was Shogun on the list? I was talking about this mode of thinking to a friend of mine, A reporter who writes on literary matters and wears the badge of realist. He said that we writers shouldn't complain. Any attention is valuable, he said. You can't demand attention. If you receive any, you should be grateful for what you get, good or bad, lumped together or not. The new writers, he said, would never get that kind of attention unless they were grouped together for an angle. The media need an angle. Culture is the angle. A new wave in Asian American literature is the angle. They are not going to feature the writers separately as the next Joyce Carol Oates or the next Raymond Carver. They're not going to devote column inches to talking about the beauty of their prose, the cleverness of their characterization. That's not topical. That's not interesting. And as to books being compared one to another, he said, there's a rational argument for that. Readers do the same thing. They categorize and compare. They ask themselves, do I want to read a mystery or a book about China? Old China or modern China? Mothers and daughters or warlords and evil empresses? Consider yourself lucky, my friend advised. And it's true. I have been lucky in this regard. Nowadays, my books are usually reviewed alone and not alongside another book by an Asian American writer. More often than not, my books are reviewed by fiction writers who may or may not be Asian Americans. They are fiction writers, first and foremost. And thus, they do discuss the relative literary merits and faults of my books and don't focus exclusively on Chinese customs, superstitions, and positive role models. And for that, I am enormously grateful. But I worry about other writers yet to be published. I've been told that the success of my books has broken down barriers for other minority writers. Is that really true? Or are they actually sowing new landmines? Has the search for a media angle and an educational purpose created stiffer requirements on future writers? Are they now going to be subjected to a standard of representational realism? What will their responsibilities be? What, in fact, is any writer's responsibility? The growing assumption is that the writer, any writer, by virtue of being published, has a responsibility to the reader. According to this ethic, The writer's musings, his or her imagination, and delights in the world of make-believe must be tamed and shaped by a higher consciousness of how the work will be interpreted, or rather misinterpreted, by its readers. God forbid that a reader in some remote Texas hamlet might believe that all Chinese men have concubines, or that all Chinese mothers speak in broken English, or that all Chinese kids are chess grandmasters. I once met a professor of literature who teaches at a school in Southern California. He told me he uses my books in his literature class, but he makes it a point to lambast those passages that depict China as backward or unattractive. In other words, he objected to any descriptions that had to do with spitting, filth, poverty, or superstitions. I asked him if China in the 1930s and 40s was free of these elements, and he said no, that the descriptions were true, but he still believed it was the obligation of the writer of ethnic literature to create positive, progressive images. I secretly shuddered and thought, oh well, that's Southern California for you. But then a short time later, I met a student from UC Berkeley, which is a school I also attended. The student was standing in a line during a book signing. When his turn came, he swaggered up to me, then took two steps back and said in a loud voice, Don't you think you have the responsibility to write about Chinese men as positive role models? Mary Gateskill, author of Bad Behavior and Two Girls, Fat and Thin, commented on this issue of the writer and his or her responsibilities. This is from her contributor's notes to a story, The Girl on the Plane, which appeared in the 1993 edition of Best American Short Stories. I don't see how people can be responsible for their behavior If they are not responsible for their own thoughts and feelings. In my opinion, most of us have not been taught how to be responsible for our own thoughts and feelings. I see this strongly in the widespread tendency to read books and stories as if they exist to confirm how we are supposed to be, think, and feel. I'm not talking about wacky political correctness, I'm talking mainstream. Ladies and gentlemen, please stop asking, What am I supposed to feel? Why would an adult look to me or any other writer to tell him or her what to feel? You're not supposed to feel anything. You feel what you feel. Where you go with it is your responsibility. If a writer chooses to aggressively let you know what he or she feels, where you go with it is still your responsibility." I suppose that if writers were responsible for people's thoughts and for creating positive role models, we would then be in the business of writing propaganda, not art as fiction. Fiction makes you think. Propaganda tells you how to think. It's the mindset of those who led the cultural revolution in China. Yet there is a faction of literary folks who believe that's what fiction by minority writers should do, tell people what to think. These writers believe, for example, that if you're Asian American, you should write about contemporary Asian Americans, none of that old China stuff and that your work should be exclusively for Asian-Americans and not a mainstream audience. If your work is inaccessible to white readers, that is proof that it is authentic. If it is read by white people, then that is proof that the work is a fake, a sellout, and hence the writer is to be treated as a traitor, publicly branded and condemned. While the numbers within this faction are small, their influence in academia and the media is substantial. They shout for attention, and they receive it. To wit, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference on Asian Americans and the arts. A professor of literature spoke passionately into the microphone about the importance, the necessity of Asian Americans maintaining our marginalism. She rallied the crowd to believe it was the responsibility of Asian American writers and artists to remain apart from the mainstream. She believed in a Marxist model of thinking for minorities, that the dominant class was the enemy, and minorities should work separately from them as part of the struggle. There is strength in marginalism, she shouted. To me, that kind of thinking is frightening, a form of literary fascism. It is completely antithetical to why I write, which is to express myself freely in whatever direction or form I wish. I can't imagine being a writer and having others dictate to me what I should write, why I should write, or who I should write for. And this is the real reason I consider myself an American writer. I have the freedom to write whatever I want, and I claim that freedom. I've been trying to understand why these factions sprang up in the first place. I suspect that they have their origins in bitterness, anger, and frustration in being excluded I've experienced those same feelings in my life, growing up Chinese-American in a white community. As a teenager, I suspected the real reason I was never asked to dance had to do with my being Chinese rather than, say, my nerdiness. As a cynical college student, I realized my forefathers never ate turkey, never fell down chimneys dressed in red costumes. In my 20s, I joined various Pacific Asian groups and became an activist for multicultural training programs for special educators. If not for a few circumstances that led to where I am today, would I have become one of those activists for ethnically correct literature? If I hadn't found my voice in a published book, would I too have shouted from a podium that there is strength in marginalism? If I had written book after book starting in the 70s and none of them had been published or reviewed, would I also have been tempted to feel there was a conspiracy going on in the publishing industry? Would I have believed that those Asian Americans who did get published and reviewed had sold their souls and were serving up a literary version of chop suey for American palates? As I thought about these questions, I remembered when I was an English major in 1970, at a time, by the way, when there were less than 450,000 Chinese Americans in all the U.S., including Hawaii, compared to 7.2 million today. In the American literature classes I took, I read Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Sinclair Lewis, Theodore Dreiser. Not a single woman or minority writer. It didn't bother me. Or rather, I didn't question that it could be any other way. In fact, during those years that I was an English major, the only female novelist I read was Virginia Woolf. I had originally thought there was another, Evelyn Waugh. Those Brits have peculiar ways of addressing men. The only minority writers I read were in a class I took called Black Literature, which is where I read Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison, but again, no books by women. I didn't even consider there was such a thing as a book by an Asian American woman. Maxine Hong Kingston's book, Woman Warrior, didn't come out until 1976. Back in my college days of the early 70s, we hadn't yet discovered political correctness. But when I read An American Tragedy, the Grapes of Wrath, Babbitt, Tender as the Night. I, too, was required to look at character flaws as symbols of social ills. I became adept at writing weekly papers, alluding to the trickier symbols and more subtle themes that I knew would please my professors. I could tell by the tone of their lectures which books they admired, which ones we had to read so that, should we one day become literary critics, we would know how to properly heap scorn and thus I would wade through each semester's stack of required reading, pen and paper at hand, ready to catch symbols and social themes with much the same focus as a gardener searching for weeds, snails, and leaf rot. When I completed my literature requirements in 1971, I stopped reading fiction, because what I had once loved, I no longer enjoyed. I didn't start reading fiction again regularly until 1985, I don't think it was coincidence that most of what I read was by women writers. Flannery O'Connor, Isabella Allende, Louise Erdrich, Eudora Welty, Laurie Colwyn, Alice Adams, Amy Hempel, Alice Walker, Laurie Moore, Anne Tyler, Alice Monroe, Harriet Doerr, and Molly Giles. I didn't deliberately set out to be a female chauvinist. I also read works by Garcia Marquez, Raymond Carver, David Levitt, Tobias Wolfe, Richard Ford, but mostly I read fiction by women simply because I had so rarely read a novel by a woman in my adult years, and I found I enjoyed their sensibilities, their voices, and what they had to say about the world. I was feeling again the thrill I had as a child choosing my own books, falling in love with characters, reading stories because I couldn't stop myself, In fact, I kept reading day and night until I couldn't stop myself from writing. When I was first published in 1989 at the age of 37, interviewers asked me why I waited so long to write fiction. I could only answer, it never occurred to me that I could. By that I didn't mean I lacked the desire. I didn't think I could because I didn't have the disposition to think of tricky symbols and plant them in carefully tilled rows of sentences. I didn't think I could because I was neither an expert on white whales or white males. The idea of my becoming a published fiction writer was as ludicrous as, say, my wearing a dominatrix costume while singing rock and roll on stage at the Los Angeles Palladium with Bruce Springsteen, which, by the way, I recently did. Suffice it to say, little of my educational past encouraged me to be a writer. If anything, it discouraged me. This short history of my educational background is to say by way of example that minorities and women were largely ignored in the literature curriculum until a couple of decades ago. And so I can readily see the reasons professors and students campaigned for the inclusion of ethnic studies programs. They pointed out how minorities had been marginalized, excluded as bona fide Americans or relegated to the sidebars of history books, to footnotes in social and psychological issues, Through the creation of these separate programs, at last, the excluded we had stories and histories of Asian Americans written by Asian Americans, taught by Asian Americans, and read by Asian American students. At last, we had a history that went beyond the railroads and the laundries of the gold rush days. And because so little was available, we found our sources for material overlapping. We looked to stories to provide history. In any case, to have our story included in the curriculum, we had to create a separate department, separate and as equal as we could make it. Due to the efforts of these departments, cultural sensitivity went up, sometimes to the heights of hypersensitivity. During the same period, American demographics changed dramatically. I remember a time when I was the only Chinese person to ever set foot in certain towns, I would wager that today the average American knows on a first-name basis at least one Asian American, through work, school, their child's daycare, their athletic club, their neighborhood store, their church, or what have you. In other words, times have changed. Unfortunately, in some circles, this notion of separatism has not. It is now a territory that must be vigilantly defended. As minority writers were asked, are you one of them or one of us? meaning we can't be both. We're asked, are you writing American literature or Asian American literature? Meaning one is not the other. Are you writing for Asian Americans or for the mainstream? Meaning one necessarily excludes the other. And those of us, including Bharati Mukherjee, Maxine Hong Kingston, and myself, who say we are American writers, have been censored by the separatists, reviled at podiums, and denounced with expletives in the student press. In the past I've tried to ignore the pot shots. A Washington Post reporter once asked me what I thought of another Asian American writer calling me a quote running dog horse sucking on the tit of the imperialist white pigs. Well I said you can't please everyone can you? I went on to point out that readers are free to interpret what they will or want out of a book and they are free to appreciate or not appreciate what they've interpreted. In any case reacting to your critics makes a writer look defensive. Petulant and like an all around bad sport. But lately, I've started thinking it's wrong to take such a laissez faire attitude. Lately, I've come to think I must say something, not so much to defend myself and my work, but to express my hopes for American literature and what it has the possibility of becoming in the 21st century, meaning a truly American literature, democratic in the way it includes many colorful voices men and women, gay and lesbian. Until recently, I didn't think it was important for writers to express their private intentions in order for their work to be appreciated. My domain is fiction, and I believe the analysis of my intentions was the territory of literature classes. But I've come to realize that the study of literature does have its effect on how books are being read and thus what might be read, published, and written in the future. For that reason, I do believe writers today must talk about their intentions, if anything, to serve as an antidote to what others define as to what our intentions should be. So why do I write? Because I once thought I couldn't. Because I now know I can. Because I have qualities in my nature shaped by my family's past and my individual history that made it inevitable that I would have become a writer. I write because my childhood was ordinary in general and extraordinary in specific. Those elements in my life combine to make me feel writing is the sort of freedom and danger, satisfaction and discomfort, truth and contradiction I can't find in anything else in life. I write stories because I have questions about life, not answers. I believe life is mysterious and not dissectable. I think human nature is best described in a long-winded story and not in a psychoanalytical diagnosis. I write because oftentimes I can't express myself any other way, and I think I'll explode if I don't find the words. I can't paraphrase or give succinct morals about love and hope, pain and loss. I have to use a mental longhand, ponder and work it out in the form of a story that is revised over and over again, 20 times, until it feels true. I write for very much the same reasons I read, to startle my mind, to churn my heart, to tingle my spine, to knock the blinders off my eyes and allow me to see beyond the pale. I do not write to dig a hole and fill it with symbols that stand for general ideas. I don't write stories as exotic costumes for ethnic themes. I don't write to represent life in general, quite the opposite. I write for the specific and unique ways that words can evoke emotions and images and thus give both pain and pleasure, wonder and confirmation. Fiction is an intimate companion and confidant for life. I write because I've been in love with words since I was a child. I hoarded words from the thesaurus and the dictionary as though they were magic stones, toys, or medicine. I loved metaphors and used them before I even knew what the word metaphor meant. I thought of metaphors as secret passageways that took me to hidden rooms in my heart and my memory and the dreamy part of myself that lived in another world. I played with my memory of both real and imaginary life the way young girls played with their Barbies and young boys played with their penises. I dressed it up, changed it a dozen times, manipulated it, tugged at it, wondered if it would enlarge and pulsate until others noticed it too. I thought of it as a weapon, a secret, a sin and an incorrigible vice. I write to discover the world for myself. I don't write to change the world for others. But if others are moved by my work or feel changed by it or say I have created positive or negative role models, I can't take either credit or blame. I write because it is the ultimate freedom of expression. And for that reason, it is also as scary as skiing down a glacier, as thrilling as singing in a rock and roll band, as dangerous as falling on your face doing both. Writing to me is an act of faith. a hope that I will discover what I mean by truth. But I don't know what that will be until I finish. I can't determine it ahead of time. And more often than not, I can't summarize what it is I've discovered. It's simply a feeling. The feeling is the entire story. To paraphrase the feeling or to analyze the story reduces the feeling for me. I also think of reading as an act of faith. I hope that I will discover something remarkable about ordinary life, about myself. And if the writer and the reader discover the same thing, if they have that connection, the act of faith has resulted in an act of magic. To me, that's the mystery and the wonder of both life and fiction, the connection between two unique individuals who discover in the end that they are more the same than they are different. And if that doesn't happen, it's nobody's fault. There are still plenty of other books on the shelf to choose from. (laughs) ¶¶